Hey, Mitch Slater, your host here. Well, I certainly hope you came to dance this very special episode of Financially Speaking as I sat down, virtually, of course, with singer, songwriter, guitarist, and rock and roll Hall of Famer, and a really great guy, Nils Lofgren. In this episode, you'll hear about the latest live record, Weathered, that breathes life into a world temporarily void of the excitement, energy, tenderness, and spontaneity of live music during COVID-19. We talk about how the music business has changed and evolved over his nearly 53-year career, which includes, besides his bands and solo work, playing with Neil Young and joining Crazy Horse at age 17, talk about crazy, life during COVID with his dogs and his awesome wife, Amy, the Ringo years, and of course, lots of stories about Bruce Springsteen and making of their new album, Letter to You, last month's SNL performance, and of course, his incredible contribution to the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, house-rocking, earthquaking, booty-shaking, Viagra-taking, love-making, legendary E Street Band. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please remember to subscribe and share. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So I remember this show Fringe a few years back where there was this parallel universe where nothing that is happening today in our world was actually happening there. And if we could step into that world, boy, I wish we could. I know one thing. My guest today, the great Nils Lofgren, would be somewhere on stage shredding his guitar, maybe spinning in a circle on tour with his band acoustically, with Springsteen and the E Street Band, with Neil Young and Crazy Horse. That's where I would be because we'd all be there because we love the live music. We desperately miss it today. And I can tell you, just speaking for myself, not seeing live music in person for over a year now is like being denied nourishment for the soul. But we're here, we're locked down, and we have, I don't know, I have to put it this way, but in my opinion, probably one of the greatest consolation prizes ever, this incredible double live album from the wonderful 2019 tour. It's called Weathered. And personally, having seen a couple of the shows on the tour, one with our mutual friend, Joan Walsh at City Winery, I can tell you the music was pure sunshine, even though many of the songs are truly filled with the blues. So welcome. And it's, uh, it, it's good to see you, Nils. How you doing, man? Hey, thanks, Mitch. It's good to be with you this morning. And hey, we're hanging in there. What can you say? You can't be doing too well if you're... <laughs> If you're a patriotic American watching what's happening to our country for the last, you know, well, look, it's it's a long history. The last four years have been awful, but here we are and we got to get through it. Taking a band out for the first time in about 17 years, because, of course, I'm regularly on tour acoustically, usually as a duo, which I love with Greg Varlata, fabulous friend here from Arizona. But I finally, with the Blue with Lou album, of course, six songs I wrote with the Reed featured and. Amy and I produced it here in our home, which where we've been making records for quite a while. And uh, I bring in a local great engineer, Jamie Weddle, who knows what he's doing, because I'm not really an engineer. I can make demos and things. But anyway, 
it was time to take a real band on the road. I hadn't done that in a long time, and, and it was just so great. Because usually you can't get the people that make your record on tour anyway. And I'm used to that. But everyone on the record, Andy Newmark on drums, Kevin McCormick bass and vocals, my brother Tommy, who came as our swing man, who we go all the way back to Grin, and uh, certainly is, you know, my brothers are my, the best friends I've ever had in my life and remain so, thankfully, all three of them. So we traveled on a bus with our crew town to town, old school way. When we made the record, we banned the click track. I wasn't in an ISO booth. We just stood in the room, played at each other, saw each other. All the instruments bled into each other. But it was time to take a live band out. And the great Cindy Mizell, who's all over the record, somehow wasn't booked with Steely Dan or some other famous actor. What a she gift. He was game for it. And I warned Cindy early on, not unlike the record, I said, look, past the great harmonies, which, you know, she'll sing with Tommy and Kevin. If you get an idea to sing or scat or just color, use your voice as an instrument. Don't, you know, wait till we're on the bus and talk to me. Hey, I had this idea. What do you think? Don't ask me, just do it. No, thank <laughs> <Because> God. <laughs> all the hundreds of shows we've done and years on the road with Bruce, Amy and I actually saw Cindy on the Seeger Sessions tour, but we became good friends on the East Street tours and it was just a joy to have her out there and, and everybody. It took all our games up to have that voice. And you can hear a lot in the live record. Well, she, she, oh, she, the, 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 the big T, we're going to play a little bit of Big Tears Fall uh, on the show because Cindy, you know, I mean, I and I and I walked away that night, <laughs> loving every minute of it. But watching her scat and some of just having her on those vocals on on this great song was just just really one yeah, of right. one of so many amazing moments. Yeah, as soon as Cindy said uh, she was she was free and she'd like to do the tour, past organizing as a band leader, which I do sometimes. Right, all the harmonies and giving everybody some rough ideas what to work on to come prepared for the rehearsal. I thought I got to get a song for her to sing. Mm -hmm. And so I started going through the titles. I settled on big tears. And of course she killed it. Knocked it out of the park. Favorite moment. If if you have the record or too many miles, which is a blues song I wrote for the every breast soundtrack that never got recorded. I wrote it for Bonnie Bramley. who's another dear friend. Amazing. You can see after the second bridge, we break down and, and she just goes, she starts scatting around the vocal, just total improv that night. Every night was different. We, we like to jam and surprise each other. Anyway, I didn't tend to record a record. Just literally before we blasted off to the Midwest, Amy implored me to please record it anyway, just to have. And it wasn't until months later, Matt Bittman, our great sound man, sent me some roughs, and I had to go, well, I'm really reckless and kind of sloppy here and there, but there's a great vibe with this cast of musicians and characters and should probably be shared. And then COVID hit and I thought, well, I'm happy to be working on a double live album because there's no live music. I had a year and a half of maybe the best live work ahead of me in my life coming up on my 53rd year on the road. And uh, I was getting greedy about it and very excited. I was going to start with Crazy Horse and Neil Young at the end of April I'm so excited about that. But anyway, it all went away for all of us. And right. Here we are, but I was grateful to get that live record mixed up and out last year.
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and kudos to Amy for, and she's done this before, I know, to, to ha- make sure that you're recording all of these shows. We have, I mean, I have your acoustic album behind me too. And and I'm so glad that that, that was recorded as well. And as I've heard you say in other interviews, Amy, you know, insisted on recording all those shows. And, and I love, and I've heard you say this too, is that you had the flexibility not knowing you were going to put that live album. So you were just up there every night at, you know, all these great places like the Birchmere and City Winery and just all these just intimate, amazing, amazing places that we love to see music and not in your mind, in your head, thinking about, well, I need this cut. I need, I need it this way. Yeah. When you, when you make a live record, Mitch, part of your job is to be a little analytical, worry about, you know, sound. But mainly it's the headspace to get, just to try to forget, hey, I got to get stuff for a record tonight. And uh, knowing I wasn't going to make a record, every night I completely forgot about that we were recording. And I went out with my intent, which is why I said, let's not record, just to jam and be reckless and have only the people in that room with us experience every night, which was different. And I was able to embrace that and do it. And it really was kind of after the fact, I realized, wow, it's it's pretty reckless, but man, there's some good vibe here. Let me shut the door. It's freezing here. No problem. No, that's all right. Freezing in freezing in Arizona. That's not something you hear every day, but, but it is, it is January. So anytime we get into the high thirties, early forties, it's cold enough for us here. But anyway, our little uh, Chihuahua outlaw Pete sneaks out about now and, you know, when he sneaks out outside, we're watching him. We're staying on top of him because we got coyotes and hawks. Oh, yeah. Got to see him as taco. And uh, mm-hmm. we, you know, we're just so uh, fragile <laughs> and beat up from uh, what we're all going through. The PTSD of, I know. of our politics and COVID that we can't, you know, we can't have any of our dogs hurt unnecessarily. God forbid. No, no. I know, I know the feeling. You know, we have a couple dogs and the little one, you know, we get out a lot, but I'm watching every second. You know, so the album itself is such a celebratory album, just like all the shows were. But then you had the opportunity to take this phenomenal record, Blue with Lou, on tour as well. And for people that don't realize this, you and Lou Reed sat down, what was it, in the early 70s when you really started talking about this? No, it was late 70s, like late 70, 70s. 79, I think we got got it done. It was Bob Ezrin producing the Nils album. And we had songs like No Mercy, things right. we really liked. We decided to do a cover of Baltimore. Bob was fabulous to work with. Yeah. Of course, one of our great producers. But I had a lot of music. And one day he said, hey, you know, you've got all these songs and, you know, that are great and done. You've got a lot of great music. And I think the lyrics are kind of subpar. And I agreed with him. And uh, he said, rather than you keep taking a poke and rewriting, what do you think about a lyricist writing with a lyricist? And I'm like, well, I don't usually do that, but depending on who it is, I'm open to it. And when he mentioned Lou Reed, I, I kind of chuckled. I said, well, how the hell would you get Lou Reed to write with me? Because I was a big fan of Lou's and very special, especially lyricist, great musician, band leader, all of it. But anyway, next thing I know, because he had produced the Berlin album, we met Lou at a studio across town the next day, talked about it. Lou said, come to my house the following week, and we'll talk it through. And long story short, you know, we wound, wrote 13 songs together. But to get into it a bit more, I'm an enormous football fan. I grew up in D.C. I know you are. I know you're a big, big Washington fan. I'm sure you're ready for the playoffs. As a Giants fan, the Eagles threw the game, but we won't go there. <laughs> 
Well, you know, <laughs> hey, look, I, I understand both points of view. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, I know the New York people and I have, I understand why you were so pissed off. But really, we all have seen the ruthless business that the NFL is. Yeah, that's for so sure. So for a team to say we're not in the playoffs, we got some guys we want to see how they can play. We might go from draft choice nine to six. Let's just look at our own self-interest and not worry about the Giants. <laughs> and, and listen, I, I, I we'll talk about it in a minute. I spent a lot of time in D.C., so I've always always been a fan. And Larry King, when I worked for Larry, we used to sit on the field with Jack Kent Cook because you know he was uh, you know a really good friend of Larry's, as was Edward Bennett Williams, and. Even though I'm a Giants fan at heart, I always kind of like Washington. So I would love to see a six and ten team go out there and beat Brady next week and win the Super Bowl. So oh, man. Uh, go go Washington football team. Yeah. So so anyway, I showed up at Lou's door in Greenwich Village and he poured a stiff drink for us. We started talking. He said, Hey, look, I want to ask a favor. And I said, Sure. He said, I'm a giant NFL fan. My favorite team is the Dallas Cowboys who's, you know, my arch nemesis. And he said, the Cowboys are playing the Washington Redskins tonight. Would you mind uh, watching the game with me while we talk through riding? And I said, hey, man, I was already upset I was going to miss the game, but I gladly to talk to you about co-writes. So, yeah, and I was a big fan, and we laughed and watched the game. I, I don't even remember who won, which is a testament to my excitement about potentially riding with Lou. But yeah. we talked through the night, and turns out, you know, I write music all the time. Lyrics in general takes a bit more work. Sometimes you get lucky and it all comes out at once. Not often enough, but it happens. Lose the opposite. He said, I write words all the time. It's my wheelhouse. I work a little harder on the music. So before we get aloft and go in six, seven hours a day and, and write together, why don't you send me what you have? Because I said I had a lot of music written already where we wanted to change the words. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And I said, do you want me to just la-di-da the melodies so you're not burdened with words I don't like? He said, no, just sing me everything. Titles, half lyrics. I understand you don't like them, but give me everything you got. I sent him a tape of like 12, 13 songs. A few weeks went by. I was busy with Bob Ezrin going up to New York three days a week, doing a lot of pre-production. Then I go back to Garrett Park, Maryland, where I had a rental house and work on what me and Bob mapped mm -hmm. out. And Lou woke me up at 4.30 in the morning, and it was the landline, of course. This was the days of no cell phone. No. And uh, he said, hey, I've been up three days and nights. I love the cassette you sent me, state-of-the-art tape at the time, cassettes. And I said, well, that's great news. Uh, I still was not sure why he called me at 4.30 in the morning. He told me, he said, hey, the reason I'm calling you is I've been up three days and nights, and I just finished the 12th song. I love the songs. I love my lyrics. If you want, I'll dictate them to you right now. So I laughed and put on a pot of coffee, got a pen and pencil, and spent a couple hours taking dictation. And at the end of it, so I said, so you're telling me you woke me up at 4.30 in the morning to inform me I'd just written 12 songs with the great Lou Reed. And he <laughs> said, yep, I did that. And he laughed and I laughed. And then I spent a few days putting the music to the lyrics, vice versa, with an upright piano and a guitar. Of course, at, at the phone call, he said, hey, I want to use three of these songs run it by Bob Ezrin. So Bob and I were happy to say, yeah, great, because sure. Bell had three of the co-writes. But anyway, I'd used uh, three on that album. I put out a couple ever since. Lou did a version of City Lights, which was a song I'd written, and he loved the chorus, and I'm keeping your chorus. I love the chorus, but I'm going to write, a, I've written a story about Charlie Chaplin, which is a much more powerful, you know, emotional story. 
about Charlie Chaplin's saga with our country and our government. And he did a great version, but he narrated it as only Lou can do. So I thought on Blue with Lou album, I want to do a version with the original melody, which we did. Called my dear friend Branford Marsalis, asked if he'd be so kind. I just didn't feel my heart wasn't in playing lead guitar through that song. It was just right, a vibe right. there. So Branford played this haunting sax, much like he did on another track. Lou Love Paul, that cut. Yeah. Which was on the Damaged Good record. Damaged Goods record, another incredible haunting lyric by the anyway got the record done we recorded yeah. it live at home just a few touches a men's choir here locally kind of like the i love album. how you yeah i love how you use the choir in blue like lou what what was the origin of that yeah well you know the origin was i really had had it and I, my heart wasn't in really producing a record a lot so what i wanted to do was just because uh, i hadn't made a record in a long time i wanted to start back to the basics no click track I didn't want to do a lot of overdubbing of guitars and synths and pianos, which I can play. And I do that work, but it's very tedious at times. I wanted to try to record live in a room with the trio, not in an isolation booth, looking through a window. And I wanted to really own the songs, not have to be, I oh, will fix the chorus later. I'll write those words later, which we've all, most people have done. So I got Andy Newmark and Kevin McCormick, dear old friends. We didn't, we didn't even record for over a week, Mitch. We learned about 20 songs and we learned to be able to play them. We tore them up, rearranged them, tried different speeds, different keys until all 20 songs were ready to like take on the road. And it wasn't even until then that we started rolling tape so that we really own these things and we could jam, get deep into them. And, you know, we might play it four or five times and find it growing. If it bogged down, we had 20 other songs. We just went to another song. So once we got the um, bed of things with the interaction of the trio, I didn't want to muddy it up because, you know, if you have 20 great parts on a record, if they're all great, you're still like pushing through the parts and you cannot hear every part, no matter how who mixes it. You know, they all share the space. So I didn't want to share the space much. I wanted what we did as a trio to remain loud and clear. So I, I looked to, to some of my favorite types of singing which was uh, an old men's choir on the Ricky, Ricky Nelson, Elvis Presley. The yeah, movie. sure. Presley. Very that peaceful that. men's choir. And of course I asked Cindy to come out with that great, you know, fabulous, unique voice she has. So soulful. And those were the overdub touches, voices, not guitars, not keyboards. And that was really the crux of the, uh, the vision of the record. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful record folks. We will be linking of course, to Nils's website. If you don't have Blue Like Lou as well as getting the live version on Weathered, there's some phenomenal cuts there that we definitely want you to check it out. And, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about, and it's always so interesting in, in the music world and is set listing. And like you said, this is your 53rd year now on the road. And I think I heard you said you maybe changed three or four songs a night, roughly on the last tour. But when you sit down there to make this record and you've got I don't know, 25, 30 shows to go through. What was it that put, like, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, that whole instrumental that leads to a little bit of vocal? Take us through your thinking and putting the final set list through together for Weathered. Okay, well, basically, we only had about six days to put the entire show together and to get to the Midwest to start. And, you know, I've got hundreds of songs, so I went to the kind of the, obviously, some handful of songs from the new album, and some of my favorites that I, I are always, you know, good to play live, like Shine Silently, No Mercy, things like that. 
of course, the Wonderland album, the Silver Lining album. These are albums I made with Andy and Kevin. So I pulled Wonderland. There was another maybe eight, ten songs that I was excited to use, but we never got around to learning them. And of course, the great thing about a performer is you really get tunnel vision of getting the show ready. It's like, hey, this is the show day. So any great ideas, we don't want to water down having a show. We got to be able to walk out and feel like a band and we can really deliver, which we did. So basically, we, we got a set list. There were about five alternates that we'd weave in four or five different ones a night. But the main, main thing was to jam, to play a lot, to really improvise. Also, you got to realize, Mitch, as an acoustic show band leader, a lot of times, if I'm alone, I'm the whole band. I can right. never stop singing or playing. Even with Greg Barlotta, there's just two of us. So you're really on all the time. Something I remembered and embraced and had missed being in the center of a long band. There were many times where the band was just so great. And all of a sudden I just say, hey, I can turn off my guitar. I don't have to sing. And I just started dancing around on stage, looking at the band and grooving. Mm -hmm. I can't do that in a solo show. I hadn't done that in 17 years in my own show. Right. (laughs) You're not doing backflips in the middle of uh, your your own acoustic. Right. So, you know. By the end of the night, usually, look, I I, know, I, I feel like I'm a, a good blues guitarist, but by the end of the night, I've been listening to myself play for two hours, so I'm getting a little tired of myself. So usually when I came to dance started near the end, I'd go, you know, Andy, Kevin, early on, I just said, hey, guys, entertain me. I'm going to go over and have a coffee with my brother Tommy at the piano. And I'd <laughs> walk away and let Andy and Kevin do whatever they wanted. I didn't know what they were going to do. And they would do some jamming. And sometimes they'd be looking at me and I'd just be sitting there with my coffee like, no, you guys are too good. I'm having too much fun. Keep playing. And that's (laughs) the thing about a band leader. Like some of the solos, when I started doing the Because of Night, so I look at Bruce like, well, this has gone on a while. And he looked at me and said, no, keep playing. Yep. Playing. (laughs) And, you know, I look it over like, I'm done. He said, no, you're not. No, you're not. (laughs) So I kind of pulled that on Andy and Kevin. And one night when I started walking over, maybe midway through the tour, Kevin was doing something on the bass that reminded me of that groove in Papa Was a Rolling Stone. So I started encouraging it and jamming around it. And then one night I just, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. I just started singing it. And man, it just, you know, Kevin, of course. Oh, I love it. And, and it turned into a bit that we started doing more. And then, of course, at some point I get the audience singing and then I go, oh my God, I got Cindy Mizell. Yeah. <laughs> she opens, that voice starts coming out. Oh, and it turned into a thing, and I just got such a laugh out of being able to put a 16-minute version of I Can't Dance on a record. Let me hear it, Lana. 
great. And and you know, as a, as as an audience member in a jazz club watching that style, there's it's just it's it's just phenomenal. I think you did because the night one of the nights I saw you too, you threw that in. But lots of live versions of that. Spirit <laughs> of the whole thing, especially since in my mind I wasn't making a record, was to really reckless and and the fact that I've been away from it over 15 years. I think I was having maybe a little more fun than if that's what I did all the time. I was having a lot more fun. And uh, well, I really clear. leaned on the band and let them take it a lot and, and had some pretty long jams. There's another big, long one and a couple other songs like Give, one of the songs I wrote. Uh, and there's a little backwards guitar thing pedal where if you turn the dial all the way to the right, you don't get the sound you're playing. You only get it thrown back at you backwards and you got to tap a rhythm like quarter notes, whatever it is, it throws what you're playing at you backwards. And if you turn the knob all the way to the right, you no longer get the initial notes. Just stuff like that, you know, being reckless and having fun. We actually did that on record and just caught a good take where it's actually on the Blue Through album. Anyway, the goal was let's jam a lot and have fun with dear old friends, with collectively probably couple centuries of experience between the five of us. Of course, and having your brothers there. I mean, it's been so rewarding. And, you know, when you guys were growing up in Bethesda, were you, you know, I know you started out as an accordion player and, and really a, ma a maestro in the accordion world, which which led to the piano and, and everything else. But when you and when, when your brothers were sitting around playing, we just playing a lot of music in the house. What were your parents listening to? I mean, I know it wasn't maybe the music you were starting out with, but what, what kind of was their generation that maybe had some influence? Well, we were lucky that both mom and dad loved to dance. That was their hobby. They loved music and they appreciated and recognized the spiritual healing properties of music. So all the time they'd be playing big band music, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, and they'd go dancing almost every weekend. You know, they'd go dancing. So I think I was five years old. I said, hey, can I take accordion lessons? For some reason, in the south side of Chicago, every kid seemed like a lot of kids were playing accordion. Now, it's a big part of my mom's heritage. She's Sicilian. She was born in Chicago. My grandparents were immigrants from Sicily, Nicosia. And my father was a three-year-old immigrant from uh, Sweden, became a citizen. Uh, they met, he was a pilot in World War II. They met at a CYO dance in Chicago. But anyway, they danced all the time, played music all the time. So when any of us in, showed an interest in music, they encouraged it. And they paid for nine years of hardcore classical accordion lessons for me, yeah. which was a big, great backdrop. But the way I see it, Mitch, between my mom and dad's you know, love of music and DNA, and between some higher power, I, I'm, I'm a really don't like any organized religion, but I'm a, I, I do believe in some kind of higher power. God's fine to call them for me. I got a gift uh, of the way I put notes together that was not of my own making. Yeah, I practiced at it and I've used it and it's led to 52 beautiful years professionally. But uh, certainly the gift itself was not of my own making. So I'm trying to caretake it the best I can. But anyway, thankfully, all four of us play and sing. And uh, we owe that to our parents, encouraging and uh, their own musical, you know, love of music too. They, my mom dabbled on organ a little bit. Uh, I'm a player piano. We all the four boys pitched in and got him a player piano years ago that they both played, sang, and danced in the home all the time. That's so, so great. It's really, them that we owe the uh, encouragement to and uh, whatever gift we got for music. 
And the dancing, listen, that stayed with you throughout all of your career, whether whether it was all the backflips you did back in the day. I know you got two, two new hips in there now. And in fact, if I recall, there was even some tap dancing on a previous tour. I, yeah. find, I remember seeing a little bit of that. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Greg Varlotta, who does my duo with me, is an extraordinary tap dancer. So we worked it into the show. And, you know, people love watching Greg do it. But I, I had him teach me a few steps. And I've been kind of an amateur tap dancer, especially 12 years ago. I had both hips replaced. Actually, I think it's 13 years now. Uh, I had to give up basketball, which was my love. I played football and basketball growing up a lot. We hey, played listen, a lot. You beat the crap out of Howard Stern. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, 34 to 4. <laughs> yep, exactly. I, I was I was his intern um, at DC 101, so I, I go way back with Howard, and I, I love that that basketball. Yeah, you know, I, I did Howard's show in D.C. originally. And, yeah, you know, I know. More just funny and uh, had a relationship with him from that. And then, of course, in New York, that led to that grudge match because his take was, I'm 6'5", you're 5'3". It's physically impossible for you to beat me in basketball, even though I don't know what I'm doing. That could never happen. Got into an argument and had the game. But, <laughs> you know, the two metal hips, I had to stop playing basketball. The surgeon said, look, man, yeah. if you keep playing basketball, the way you do on city courts, right? The rough three on three, five on five games. You're going to destroy these hips in two or three years. We're going to have to pull them out. So I picked up tap dancing, and Greg gave me some lessons. And I still, you know, I have a love for it. I put it in my show. Me and Greg would do it, and for a while, it was just a laugh to see me try. I've gotten, you know, a decent beginner, but that's it. But uh, actually, a funny story with that. I think it was last year we put out Colorado, Neil Young Crazy Horse record. Right, right. That we made up uh, in, in Colorado. Yeah, you recorded in Telluride, if I recall. Yeah, Amy right? drove yeah. me 10 yeah. hours north and uh, spent a few days with me. We, we used to go there every year. She's been going there for over 30 years. Yeah, great skier, Amy. 15 years. She became a great skier there, and I became a beginner snowboarder. But we love Telluride, and we uh, hung out. And it was kind of a ghost town because the seasons were changing. Everything was closed. And we just hung out and reminisced on the streets of Telluride and uh, you know the dogs would come by and visit us and it was very empty and cool but we had dinner with Neil and Daryl while the other guys were coming into town Billy who was driving from South Dakota got caught in a blizzard so he was going to arrive a day or two late but we were just talking and you know one of the demos Neil had sent House of Love I said Neil when I was listening you know very primitive Neil just playing and singing and I said Neil when I was listening to that demo I kept jumping out of the chair and tap dancing because there's a set place where he talks about a train rolling. It goes clickety clack, clickety clack. So I'd, I'd always jump out of my seat and tap dance. And we had a good laugh at it. But the next day in the studio, the engineers who were kind of frantically trying to put a live session together. And not only did Neil like to play live, he didn't even want headphones. It's like, give me a PA, plug in some speakers. We're not using headphones. I want to see everyone and hear everyone in the room. We're going to play live. And uh, it's very, you know, primitive and grassroots and funky and beautiful. But they said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Neil's sitting there thinking, he goes, we're going to do House of Love and Nils is going to be tap dancing. And then he walks off to play his vibes. He's going to be playing vibes on this track. And uh, everyone's looking around like, what the hell is that? Have you usually uh, what, what amp are you using? What guitar are you using? And I said, don't worry, guys, I got this piece of wood, got a little mic on it going to run it through some foot pedals. You can take it direct into the console. 
And, you know, it was just hilarious to sit there, our first song, tap dance. I, I'd like to say, hey, I'm, that's one of my oldest and dearest musical families is Neil Young, Ralph. Well, it's completing the circle. I mean, for those that, that aren't aware, Nils was 16, 17 years old, and you were able to... Ancient 18 when I played on After the Gold Rush. But yeah. But, you, met, but when you met Neil and you went backstage, I think you were a little younger and you had the guts yeah. to sit there and play four songs for him. Yeah, I was just 17 and Grin was about to go to LA to look for a record deal. We'd struck out already in New York. Even though I was shy, I felt like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I've got to ask for advice. I snuck in on Neil and Crazy Horse. Long story short, he let me play four or five songs from the first Grin album I'd written. He liked them. He said, hey, why don't you hang out with us for a few days? Got me a cheeseburger and Coke. I watched two shows a night and uh, true to his word, he even called me from the road. And uh, a few weeks later, when I got to L.A. and looked him up, true to his word, took us under his wing with David Briggs, his producer. And uh, while Grin was finding our rocky way with David as our producer, about a year later, I was 18. Neil and David said, hey, we're doing this after the Gold Rush Project. We want you to play piano play guitar, sing. Ralphie will be there. Greg Reeves, bass player from Crowley Stills and Nash. And I said, guys, I'm not a professional piano player. And they're like, well, look, Nils, we, we've seen your accordion trophies. We've heard you play accordion. We know you've been playing that since you were five. We just need some simple, basic parts. We like your rhythms and melody ideas, so we think you can handle it. And at that point, what am I going to say? No? Yeah, so I exactly. said, hey, I'll give it a shot and do my best. So I practiced a lot. I was nervous about it. They would always go uh, have lunch. We, we got a remote truck to Neil's home in, up in the hills of Topanga. They would always go up on the patio for lunch, beautiful outdoor view of the mountains. I would always stay behind and practice. We call it the Gold Rush Upright, which is the one I played out recently on the shows we did. It's always there. I would practice and usually um, I was alone, but this day Ralphie stayed behind. We were working on Southern man that day. It was like, bum, bum, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun. a halftime beat. We Ralphie and I got into a good jam. And after a while I decided to just change it up a bit. And, you know, you realize I'm just, you know, fresh off of 10 years of accordion playing. And of course that's steeped in the polkas. Mm -pop, mm -pop, mm -pop. So I started double timing, you know, my left hand doing octaves. And then Ralphie started double timing the beat, and we came up with a different groove. Classic. And we got into a really, you know, deep jam. And when David and Neil came back from the, from the lunch, because we were underneath them, they said, what the hell is that? I said, well, that's Southern Man with a polka beat. And they <laughs> laughed and said, well, that feels great. But please don't ever say that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes back to your parents again. I'm sure that's. But anyway, uh, Neil said, look, let's keep it halftime. When we get to the solo in the middle, Ralphie kick us into the double time groove, drop back to halftime last verse. At the end, when I solo out, let's go back to that field. And that's what we did. And it worked out great. And it was it just felt cool that my old accordion days led to uh, an arrangement change on that great tune.
that one of the one of the great songs of all time. So I got to tell you, Nils, when I when I moved to D.C. when I went to school, GW in the late seventies, a friend of mine down there said, "You got to listen to this progressive radio station, one you know very well, WHFS in Bethesda." And that's the first time I actually heard you and your voice and the album. And the album was "I Came to Dance," I think, which had just come out. And at that point, I just landed my first gig at the college radio station at WRGW, and I ran in there, and they were, you know, they were trying to be new wave, and I said, guys, add this to the playlist. This is incredible. I did kind of the same thing at DC 101 when I was there a few years later. I think the first show I saw was at the Bayou, if I recall. I know you did a bunch of shows there in, in DC, and, you know, Bethesda, I'm sure, your hometown in many ways. I know you grew up in Chicago for a little bit, but, you know, that's, that's just really really amazing. While you were so young and you're meeting Neil Young, you're also out in San Francisco, I think. And that's where you ran into this guy now with 50 years of friendship. Didn't you meet Bruce when around 1970? Was it somewhere around that? Yeah. You know, first of all, going back to WHFS, yeah. one of my high school buddies, Damian Einstein, his father, Jake, Damian. Oh uh, my God. started the first FM radio station, WHFS. It was in Bethesda, Maryland. He was the DJ I listened to. Yeah, and it was just upstairs in a little office. Uh, we used to go there, you know, as high school kids, sit there around the room and watch Damien play the Blues Project and Paul Butterfield, Blues Band, and all these great FM things that we, you know, you, you wouldn't hear on mainstream Top 20. So we were in on that from the ground floor. A lot of great music and great places to play in the D.C. area. But fast forward to Grin on our journey uh, in 1970, Bill Graham had an audition night. I think it was once a month. There's 20 bands, play 20 minutes each. You know, you get in free, the locals pay a buck for a beer and watch these young bands. And my band, Grin, had an audition, hoping to get an opening act slot on one of Bill Graham's shows. Bruce was there with Steel Mill, and they were auditioning too. So that was my first real exposure to Bruce. I'd heard about him. And since then, you know, I've always followed him, started going to his shows. Actually, my first show as a solo artist after Grinch, sadly, we made four albums and did a farewell concert at Kennedy Center because the deals dried up. First show at Kennedy Center, if I recall, right? We were the first electric band, rock band, to play there thanks to our history. We tried to go out with some class. We called it our farewell concert. It was very, very sad for us and upsetting, but, you know, hey, welcome to show business. You make records, get good reviews. We're not making any money. There's no more deals for you. So I carried on as a solo artist, but way back in 70, Bruce and I met on that night and I follow him ever since and uh, go to see him play. And I was going to say he did a run at the bottom line, bottom line, yeah. where we all played dozens and dozens of times. Sure. And uh, my first solo gig had a four piece band at the Fat Man album, 74, the next night. And I went to see Bruce and it was so inspiring and kind of awestruck, like, oh, my God, I got my first gig tomorrow without my band Grin, and I was nervous as hell. But it was cool to see Bruce do his thing with what, at that point, was the E Street Band. Right, 1975, the great, those bottom line shows. And speaking of Bruce, this is out now. And what a, what a, what a gift letter to you it was, and, and I'm sure what a thrill. So, obviously, after bottom line, 84 happens. You get together with Bruce. I mean, there's so much history. We're not here to talk about that. But I did want to at least bring up Letter to You because, you know, you, you kind of saw this coming. Obviously, you were there when, when they recorded it. And in, in some ways, in a similar fashion to what you were talking about that you did with Nils. 
And when, when Zimney, who was on my show, showed me the documentary a few months before it came out, the synergy and the fun that you guys had making that record, I almost expected to see you put that funny cowboy hat on from the Cadillac Ranch, Darlington uh, County days. <laughs> that must have been a fun experience throwing the letters to you together. It was extraordinary. And I stay in touch with all the guys, but, you know, we don't chit chat and I don't grill. I, I I afford Bruce the respect of, you know, not grilling him about what he's thinking all the time creatively. But he did an interview, you know, kind of well-known with Scorsese and mentioned he'd written songs for the East Street Band, which we all got excited about. And it led to us getting together live. And of course, all the records we made, it had been a long time since we were all together in a room playing. And I think it was, you know, Roy who had mentioned he had a lunch with Bruce prior to all that, you know, a couple months earlier. And Bruce had mentioned he had this batch of songs for us. And Roy suggested that he not send us demos because a lot of times, you know, Bruce will send you a demo and the demo is so damn good. And he's like, Hey, no, there's a slide part on the demo. Maybe you could, you know, pick that up. And I'm like, well, you played it great, but yeah, okay. I'll pick that up. <laughs> such a great musician. But I think it really um, paid off Roy's suggestion to like, Hey, let's just, not have demos that you make so we don't have pre-existing ideas of our parts. Let's just sit together and do it from scratch. And uh, I think that really, in addition to being together, it just was great. You know, Bruce picks up a guitar. We all got our notepad and paper to write chord charts in our own little hieroglyphics way. And then we go, we all had our own mixes, meaning we had headphones, but you had everyone, you know, so like if I wanted more piano or more Bruce or less of this guitar or less of me, I could adjust the mix to be just what I wanted to hear. And to give each musician, a lot of times, you know, bands in the studio will share two mixes. So they kind of compromise. Like, okay, well, you need more of yourself. I'd like to hear a little more of me, but that's okay. Or if you need more bass than I'd like, have it. But this way, we all had our own mixes. So we could tailor the mix to really be hearing what each one individually wanted to hear. And it just led to a hellacious, beautiful week of recording live together. we were going to wait right. to go tour. Mm -hmm. And I think Bruce and all of us were hopeful that the people in charge, our government would have their act more together and maybe, you know, get really hands-on about the virus and getting to a better place. Like some countries have done very well. Yeah. We didn't do that. No. So now I think thankfully Bruce realized touring may be so far in the future. There's a vibe here. People are hurting for music. And he made the decision to get the record out and share it with not able to plan a tour. And we're all blessed that he did that, of course. Yeah, no, of course. And and expect to see more, more work like that this year and more special releases. And hopefully early 2022 with vaccines in our arm. And I don't know, maybe we maybe the band should head to New Zealand and Australia where they got it right and start there. <laughs> well, they may be, you know, God knows they may have like a lot of bands in line trying yeah. to work a trip to New Zealand. But anyway, yeah, yeah. 
all got to just be patient, stay healthy. That includes everyone in the audience. I mean, God bless all the frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors. We have a lot of friends that are in that field that are just so dismayed at the awful you know, support and help from our government, the lack of it, the lack of common sense, the, you know, the bullshit and the lies constantly. I mean, look, you know, the experiment in freedom can be, yeah, let, every, let, let people get rich, but, but not at the expense of the truth, not at the expense of, of science and, and health. And that's the, 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 our experiment in freedom has gone awry. And now it's on all of us to correct it in our own way. And of course, you know, I hope other than, you know, I got my fierce wife, Amy on Twitter, warring with all these awful people and ideas for years that that really led to me writing what was my first protest song in a while, Rock or Not, which is with Lou album and it made the right. weather. It's on the weathered Lou. album. I love it. Yeah, that yep. was inspired by Amy and her work on Twitter and just uh, all the great fierce women through history that. You know, we still, I mean, get out of the way, man. Look what we did in thousands of years. Let's get out of the way. Let the women run the show for a while. Without a doubt. And 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 speaking of you, you and Amy, you guys also, you know, are so involved in so many different nonprofits and you've got the, you know, the the, the bands that you got that are on your uh, on your website. And that's that's for this organization, if I believe it's in out of Kenya and it's helping educate kids. Yeah, there's this great charity where there's ro- nomadic tribes that that Rome and Kenya and the mothers make these bracelets and sell them. And uh, they're at my website as a charity and every bracelet, the, thor- the thorn tree project, I believe is thorn what it's called, project. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every bracelet sold buys breakfast for a year for a student. And there's these incredible teachers that roam with the tribes and teach the young kids, you know, especially the girls and teach them and educate them. And that, you know, is such a brilliant thing. You see people with nothing stepping up and helping others. You know, that's what we need more of. So Amy turned me on to that. We had them on the road, on the tour. We had them out at the merch table. And they were enough. The people in charge of the project actually went back to the Kenyan mothers. And they were kind enough to make braces with nils on them that we at the show. As they sent Amy like a batch of 100 of them or something. So all the, all the money we get goes to that charity. And it's a worthwhile charity you can check out at nilsofkin.com beautiful charity doing oh great. yeah no absolutely and uh, had i not give given mine to my nieces and my daughter uh, i'd have one on my hand today but I, I i i've been handing them out so i always i always forget that that you know financially speaking is the name of my show every now and then so i just want to bring up a couple of quick things and then close with something is you know the music business nils obviously hell of a lot different today than than when you walked in on on neil young and and got got things rolling back in the in the 70s you know when i was talking to johnny resnick uh, the go of uh, the goo goo dolls who happens to just live on my street a few months ago and we're talking about some of the early contracts he signed and you know in some ways he regrets them but then he never would have gotten where he got what are some of your memories going back to some of the old contracts and and that side of the business and then i want to get into streaming for a little bit too cuz yeah you know I mean, look, when I grew up, the, there was no cell phones, no internet. The only game in town was to learn how to play in front of people and get a record deal. I got some deals. None of them were great deals. They, they don't give great deals to new artists. But, you know, I had this long career. And the short story is in the early 90s, I had signed with the first CD company in history, Ryko Disc. And they put out old music. One of their first releases was my Fat Man album, my first solo album. 
So here we are. And the theme was one of my best friends, Arthur Mann, who's a fabulous guy and founding member and an attorney got me there. And the theme was to just do me, right? Just do me. And I was going to make records. And at some point in the early 90s, they had an A&R guy who was an accountant who was in charge of A&R, which is artists and repertoire. You know, they kind of work with you. And, you know, Mitch, throughout history, usually what would happen is the A&R guy would come to the studio like in the 70s with David Briggs or with Bob Ezrin on the you know, And they just kind of sat there. And usually what they did was just make sure their money wasn't being wasted. You know, they see you and a producer that they picked with you working and getting stuff done. So they're like, OK, no worries here. That was it. As the music business evolved by the late 80s, you started getting A&R people. And that's what happened to me. That would come and go, you know what? First step was, I don't like who you're working with, the producer you want to work with. That's unacceptable. And I'm like, well, why don't you let us do a couple things and we'll look at them? No, that's not going to be good for us. So that that started getting oppressive. Then after two of those things, working with, you know, one of my dear friends, like Stuart Smith, who uh, is in the Eagles now and played on my Code of the Road band. Amazing keyboard, singing, guitar. Extraordinary. It all. Stuart and I were all excited. We made a couple of demos. No, you can't work with him. Then there was somebody else I wanted to work with. No, you can't work with him. So, all right, guys, this is getting silly. You pick somebody. Let me check them out. So they picked somebody. Uh, Eric Amble did a great job on Silver Lining. You know, Eric and I got together. We did some demos. Yeah, good. But but they came down to the, our, to my basement in Maryland, and we, we were all excited. We had all these songs. He said, you know, I'm sorry. Before this, I sent um, 35 songs that I was really feeling good about. This was after the um, the album with Eric Amble, Crooked Line. Crooked Line, yeah. And I was getting ready to make damaged goods. I had 35 songs. Never have that many songs. Usually I try to get 15 or 20 before I say, okay, let's figure out how to make a record. And I was really excited about it. And even later, you know, after a lot of trial and error even bruce said hey there's some really great songs on damaged goods no so i really enjoyed the songwriting on that and i i took that to heart but they sent somebody down um who said you know what we don't like any of these songs i don't think there's a record here i don't even think uh, i feel good about you writing anymore i, I think we're going to give you a list of people to write with and i was like are you out of your mind man this is some of the best songs i've written and i got so pissed off I jumped in my car. I drove to Philly. I walked into Arthur Mann, my buddy and friend. Right, who brought right. Me on this, and I said, Arthur, you must fire me. I'm begging you to fire me. <laughs> Get rid of me. I don't belong here. I told him what happened. I said, this is madness. Please just fire me. Well, Arthur totally understood. He's my friend, but he's also a partner, right? And you know, in the business world, you can't just throw all your partners under the bus. So it was a year and a half of hell of lawyers and arguing and compromising before I got a release. And once I got my freedom, I said, you know what? I can never have a record deal again. This was the early 90s. You had the Internet now. And I found some great friends, Dick and Linda Bangham, who still run my website. We formed a website. I started making music on my own. Complete freedom. I mean, of course, you know, smaller numbers. You don't have a big company offering promo and all this. I didn't care. I had freedom. I had musical freedom. And I managed to do what I wanted up till then, like me and Eric Amble when we made uh, Crooked Line. I love that record. Eric did a great job. But when they'd come down, 
you know, it was just like blowing smoke. And we just kind of, he felt like a psychiatrist. Like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, these five songs are big singles. I think they're great on, they're going to be great on the radio. And we're like, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you hear five singles. Great. He just kind of psychiatrist, the guy that leaves your home and goes away. And uh, that was so different from the old days where they just wanted to make sure you weren't wasting their money and having parties instead of making music. So that's why I needed my freedom. I got it. I've been free ever since. Of course, fast forward through these years since the early 90s, Dick and Linda Bangham, you know, Linda runs the website. Dick does all the artistic stuff. Amy designs the merchandise and oversees all the artwork. Uh, she's my partner in this. And uh, we got Cattle Track Road Records, which is Cattle Track great art gallery and a street up at the end of our cul-de-sac road. And we just got a mom and pop business now. Amy's my partner. You know, I run everything by her. I leave the uh, creator stuff to her because she designs much better shirts and has a great eye for uh, like the Face of Music box set. She picked that old photo of my Jimi Hendrix thing, oversaw that whole package, which I love that package, you know, that yeah. box set. But but so it, there, there's a joy in this having that freedom. And that's what I would say to younger people. Just really don't sign a long-term record deal, please. Until thankfully now there's technology. You can make demos without selling your home or, or yeah, going, of course not. You go on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, there's ways to like keep your thing going as a young adult and not jeopardize that while you make music and be creative. And there's cheap little recording devices you can do multi-track at home because that's what it's about. It's like, Hey, here it is. Listen to it. You like it or you don't. Way back in the late 60s, David Briggs, Neil Young's producer, when he was trying to get Grant a deal, they were always like, well, I know you're Neil Young's producer, but I don't know these kids. And I hear some demos, but what if you can't make it? So finally, David got frustrated. And even back then, he just borrowed like 20 grand from a businessman in Toronto. And we made an album with no record company. So then he walked around. He said, look, this is a finished record. We don't want to change it. It's called Grin. What do you think? Well, thank, thankfully, after that, Clive Davis got, gave us a deal on Columbia. Uh, we had a little subsidiary called uh, Spin Dizzy, and Grin was on their way. So fast forward to today now. It's been a long time. I've been a free, free artist with my own uh, you know, little mom and pop thing going on with my wife as a partner. And I, I love that freedom. And I would just encourage anybody, don't sign your life away or your publishing away at a young age. I wanted to ask you about publishing because that obviously that's so much in the news. Bob Dylan recently just signed away all the publishing rights to everything from, you know, blowing in the wind on. And then of course, Taylor Swift did the same thing. And then she kind of got a little screwed and now she's re-recording all of her records and the guy from the Goo Goo Dolls, he just sold his. What, what do you think about all this? Because you've got these companies that are just like totally taking ownership over 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 the publishing rights. And it's all about that at the end of the day, right? A little bit of history there that I didn't know that I learned. Up until I think it was maybe even as late as the 50s, back in the old days, the 40s, 30s, 50s, when you got a record deal, what the company would do is say, okay, look, we're going to give you a record deal. You can make records, but you must turn over all the writing to us. All the publishing, all the writing, you get it all up. 100%, we own it or there's no deal. And of course, back in those days, you know, you, there was a Cadillac Dreams movie that I thought was done quite well. It was kind of like they'd take um, African-American artists from the South or whatever and say, hey, look, here's a Cadillac and 500 bucks. Just sign this paper. Everything you write, we own. Everything you record, we own. It was just such a travesty. And, and, and 
sadly, I mean, they, that happened to all the white artists too, but in particular, they took advantage of the African-American singers and writers. So what happened was at some point in history, and I know Bonnie Raitt has always been a big champion of artists' rights, in particular African-American artists, and uh, looking out for them. But at some point, enough people ganged up and said, look, the writing, look at, at, at when you write a song, look at the song as a pie, right? They cut it in half. Half of it's called writers. Half of it's called publishing. So they made a law that you are not legally allowed to sell the writer's share, but you can sell all the publishing. So when you hear about this, you know, they sold all the publishing. Yes, they got paid $150 million because they're a big ass artist to sell all the publishing. Now that's sad in some respect because of course the publishing has the rights to use it. And, you know, it gets a lot more messy in the contract. I don't know. Can Bob Dylan say, no, I don't want my song on a, you know, commercial for cereal. Maybe I don't he, think he can. I don't, know, I, don't know. I don't know what his contract is, but he's not legally allowed to sell the writing. So keep in mind, these people still have half the pie. They sold the other half for extraordinary profit. Maybe just to have some peace of mind moving forward in their 70s. As they move forward with the pandemic, where none of us are allowed to go sing and play, which is right. 90% of our income, really. Exactly. Exactly. In most cases, for me anyway. So, you know, look, I don't begrudge anybody doing what they have to do for their mm-hmm. families. Yeah. Hey, you know, if I look at my vet bills, the last mm-hmm. yeah. 15 years, yeah. hey, I sell my guitar <laughs> before I let one of my dogs go without a good treatment. I got a lot of guitars to sell, and I've sold a lot. Of Already. I saw you, you you had a great little auction online recently with some of you. Was it hard saying goodbye to some of that old equipment? You had a lot of, lot of obviously a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it, it was, but it, it was tempered by this, Mitch. Through the 50 years plus, 55, I started as a kid playing teen clubs. You look at all these great old amps, nobody's using them. And I'm, I'm not, I don't have a museum with a caretaker. And I thought, so if, you know, I've still got so much stuff that I play and use. I've got stuff all over my property. I've got stuff in Bruce's warehouse. So I sold a couple hundred items that I just it's not going to use. And I'm like, this is a great amp. Use it. There's some of the really old stuff, like my first Fender Super Reaver, Blackface 410 Super I got in the mid-60s at Chuck Levin's Washington Music in D.C., still the greatest music store in the country. Now it's in Wheaton, Maryland. Chuck Levin's Washington Music. Burned to the ground in the riots in the 60s. They opened up in Wheaton, Maryland. Still the greatest music store, I think, in the world. And I still they still send me stuff all the time. Whenever I'm back there, I walk in and just walk around. But a lot of that stuff, like my, I wouldn't sell my Blackface Super Reaver, but there's a lot of other amps I've gotten through the years I don't use anymore. So to get them as a musicians that'll use them because that's what they're for. It wasn't that hard. It was just more the organization. Bob Weber, a good friend who's a tech on Bruce and does my stuff, came in and worked with Weeks to get it all organized, shipped to Chicago. So Reaver, which is a great site, can sell them. I recently sent a bunch of foot pedals and slides that I'm just not going to use. So I think there's something healthy in purging your stuff and not being too attached to stuff. If you're not going to use it, let somebody play. Let someone play with it. It's such good. Exactly. And that's what I love that, you know, other musicians are getting that opportunity. I wanted to just bring up streaming in the business world. I remember when you shared, I think it was like an $8 check and you simply, you said, we simply just don't get paid for our work, which probably is one of the truest statements in the last 25 years I've ever heard. Do you think the music industry was just asleep at the wheel? I mean, the labels to, to allow this 
to happen. I mean, they saw they saw it coming with Napster. I mean, it was it was it was so obvious where where things were heading. And then they just continue to take advantage of you with all the other services. Yeah, you know my my favorite check. I have a seven cent check. Oh, jeez. And I, 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 Amy and I have a picture of it somewhere. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I get out there. No, I, I don't think the music industry was asleep at the wheel. I think the music industry and the streaming industry got together and said, "Hey, this is a whole new field, and we've got these guys under contract, so we can take a stance legally that we own everything." And they get a small 7% of it, but streaming is a whole new business. So we can on our own negotiate for the artists without their involvement. And I think the artists and the artist management, I wouldn't say necessarily asleep at the wheel, but they got had and they got taken. And when you wade through court systems and, and a company has millions of dollars and dozens of lawyers on call and they're like, Hey, there's your name. You signed it. This is a whole new area. So we're claiming ownership. Fighting that is not that easy, and it's been happening, but uh, it's been unsuccessful to look out for the singers and writers as it should be, and it's a great point of contention and will remain so until something is done about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me wind this up with just a couple of lightning round things I just thought we'd throw out there. I got to bring this up because I had the opportunity to hear all eight sound checks when you guys did Purple Rain in Brooklyn. What was your relationship with Prince? I guess was the first question. And Nils, that was, you know, I've seen you play a lot of beautiful music and beautiful riffs, but that's really one of, honestly, my favorite moments of seeing anything on stage. And I saw Prince play a surprise show, you know, in the mid eighties in Chicago. So what's the history there? I loved Prince. I'm still devastated we lost him. Tom Petty, on and on. Uh, it was a horrible year. Uh. I was, I think, in a hotel, getting ready to check out, get to my lobby call. I saw on TV, there were some ambulances, and, they, and I heard them say they were in front of Paisley Park, right? Never entered my mind that Prince was in trouble. Never occurred to me, because he was such an athlete. He played basketball. He was all healthy. That's the image out of him. So it didn't occur to me. Then I go, we get to New York, we got to run. And all of a sudden we realized Prince is gone. Devastating. We were all crushed. The day before we did that show, Mitch, Bruce, I think he sent me a text. He said, hey, I think tomorrow night, he might've called me. I can't remember. He said, I think tomorrow night we're going to take a poke at Purple Rain. Please let the guys know. So I, I called around. Mostly I, I called Fred and George Travis, who are, you know, our Twitter and head of all these. He said, hey, Bruce said to get the word out to be ready to do Purple Rain tomorrow night. That was it. I started learning the song. And I know because I've been in the band 36 years. There's no point in asking Bruce what key are we in? Because he won't know until he's he's on stage. Sure enough, you know, move the capo. uh, Try this key. Try that key. Let's do it in uh, B flat. That'll be best to sing in. Never asked him who's playing the solo. He didn't know. Got three great guitar players in the band. So I just took it upon myself. I went to the, first of all, I was very upset. And uh, having to play that song was very emotional. And I, I, knew I know. So I usually I go ahead about two hours ahead of the band just to be alone with my road crew, with the sounds, with my pedals, with my, whatever I need to do for myself. Because once Bruce and the band show up, it's about, you know, the surprises Bruce may give us to learn for that night. So I went about three hours early. I found a little room. I put Prince on YouTube and I played every version of Purple Rain I could find. And I just jammed along with a tiny little lamp with some overdrive. 
I didn't craft a solo. I just played, played, played. We walked out to the sound check, no discussion. We pick a key. We start playing the song. Everyone learned their parts. We get to the solo. I keep my eye on Bruce in case he goes for his fuzz tone. I see him put his arm up in the air to my side of the stage, looking down. I hit my fuzz tone and I go play the solo. Played it, end of the song, that was it. It's like, okay, I think we'll open the show tonight with this. No discussion about it. He could have pointed to Steve. He could have played right. it himself. We got three right. guitar players. Right. And there was no discussion. I played it, said, we're good. Let's open the show with it tonight. So then I go back and I keep jamming to Prince on the thing. An interesting thing this night, one of my guests was going to be Stephen Colbert and Evie. Right. And a couple a couple family members. Yeah. fans of Stephen Colbert. Yeah, and the nicest people in the world. They're next door neighbors to good friends of mine in Montclair. And, and so really, really love, love Stephen Eddie. Brilliant yeah. talk show, brilliant comedian. We used to watch the Colbert Report. Amy sure. and I was at show live in New York. We actually went to see him a month earlier when we were holed up in New York because we'd base out of New York playing around. Right. And we went to see the show, went back and said hi to Stephen and Evie. And of course, Amy invited them to an E Street show. Mm-hmm. You know, just say, hey, you should come see the band. They're in great shape. And Stephen, because he's Stephen Colbert, and of course, look what he does every night from scratch every day. I know. And, he, and he was like doing the standard, oh my God, thank you. But yeah, almost I like didn't want to hurt our feelings. Like, well, I, mm-hmm. I'm so busy. I don't, I don't know, you know, if I could ever get away. But I really, and Amy was so great because she said, she looked at Evie standing right next to her and said, well, Evie, you don't need him. You can come without him. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> and we all fell out laughing because like, oh, that's right. You don't need me. My wife could go. <laughs> anyway, I stayed in touch with them. They came. And honestly, Mitch, I said, please, please come early. You have to get there really early. Because when we get closer to the show, I'm running from Bruce's room to the band room, doing practice, different songs. Bruce gets ideas. Oh, here's three songs we never played. We haven't played in 50 years. Maybe. <laughs> Well, you know, 15, whatever. Well, he threw a lot in those those couple of nights, too. Yeah. Thankfully, Stephen showed up early as I asked, and I was able to forget after hours of the solo, the emotion of his death. I was able to take Stephen and his family to tour the whole backstage, the inner workings, the teleprompters, the foot pedals, all the things. And they loved it. They were fascinated by it. And, you know, I said, some people use the teleprompter. Like, there's a teleprompter roadie. Yeah. Feet- you know, some got somebody, you know, Patty may want chords and lyrics. Bruce wants lyrics only. But, you know, it's like some people are like, hey, I'm only going to play, you know, 13 songs a night and I can't be bothered to memorize the lyrics. And every night's the same. So Bruce used like at the end of the Wrecking Ball tour, I think uh, we decided somebody did the math and we played 267 different songs. 267 different songs yeah so hey bruce uses this because he'll get a sign out of the audience like some great rock song from the 60s say guys 
Let's try this one. He'll throw it down the stairs and they're surfing the net internet to find the lyrics to get him in his teleprompter in 18 <laughs> seconds. Cause we're at his mic figuring out what key are we going to do it in? Yeah. So like, how did the bridge go? How did the bridge go? Oh shit. The bridge. And yeah. then if one guy in the band has an idea, we're good. If right. no one has an idea, Bruce goes, well, just fake it. If we go back, now the lyrics are so we I really got to expose the Colbert's to what's really going that. on. Yeah. Our band and the reckless kind of freedom that Bruce likes to push us to the edge and himself, by the way. And then we went to a back room and had some food brought over and we were sitting and visiting. It was right up till about 25 minutes before the show. And I got all dressed. I did all the stuff I had to do. And it was such a beautiful distraction to not keep dwelling in the law. You're on in 20 minutes, man. You got to go. Steven, you and your family ought to get out to your seats to catch the opening of the show. And somebody took them to get in there. And it just all worked out. So when we walked out, instead of thinking, oh, man, two hours into the show, we're going to do Purple Rain and being worked up about it. Right away. With it. And right yeah. away, like rehearsed enough to just use my instincts, hook into the band. And we caught a very emotional performance of it. No, you did. And there was not a dry eye in the house. And that was just, you know, I've got a lot of moments of incredible memories. And that's that's your solo on that is, is always going to be one of it. You know, speaking of the concerts, I was going to ask you, when we do get back out there, it's gonna, everything's going to be different. I mean, it's hard for me at this point in the pandemic to even imagine a pit, you know, and imagine standing there with, you know, hundreds of people. It's just so hard to even just fathom that. Yeah, I know, Mitch, but it's it's the lifeblood for most of us. I mean, me and yeah. Amy go out and see shows in Tempe, Phoenix, Dale. Right. I mean, one of the last shows we saw was a dear friend, Branford Marsalis, and a quartet. Mm-hmm. Just extraordinary. You get to go back and see old friends that come through town. I realized, too, this last year, Mitch, a lot of my I was feeling disembodied. Like, I feel like I'm out of touch with my friends. I realized that when you spend half your life traveling the world a lot of times let's say you're in 40 different u.s towns there's going to be musicians you wouldn't normally see that come down to the show or on a day off we'll meet you for breakfast and you see a friend and you talk to them so in the last few months i've really had to start using the phone more reaching out to people say hey remember me (laughs) (laughs) the hell's going on but i do think that the promoters because of course they're in a business right my i lost a year and a half of work disappeared overnight and I think they're trying to figure out like, okay, let's say people get both vaccines. Let's get some kind of badge, like a driver's license or a hundred dollars right. so that you can't counterfeit that easily. Right. And people say you can't get in, mm-hmm. but if you have a badge, right. Safe. And if everyone now to take that to the scale of 300 people in a bar, that's one thing to take it to a scale of tens of thousands of people. That's an enormous undertaking, but that's the task. Until there's a cure, there is no cure. There's right. a vaccine. At some point, we're going to get to a place, I hope, where without the, with this badge, you're in. Without right. it, you can come in and to keep it that hardcore to protect everyone, protect the band. I know some big bands have done pay-per-views and yeah. big concerts and very successful. And I'm sure sitting at home, it's fun to sit there and look at it. It's not the same. I went to Southside Johnny's car concert he did out at Mammoth Racetrack in the summer. And, you know, I love, I love Johnny and it's always a lot of fun, but man, that just, you know, no, sitting it's, in not, car, oh. it's not the same. And in the not case, even close. And in the case of me 
or the people I've worked with and, you know, Patty's bands, I've been on the road, Patty has some great bands. Right. Right. Willie Nelson. I've gotten to play with uh, Bruce, Neil Young, Ringo, all-star band. Yeah, of course. Like literally the audience is as valuable as any member of the band, what they give us and the energy they give us and the sizzle in the room and the expectation. I often talk about, you know, when you walk out with Bruce, I don't care if you're Italy, Spain, Sweden, Poughkeepsie, mm-hmm. you know, Albany, Chicago, it don't matter. It's like you're playing a Super Bowl for a hometown crowd and somehow you've been guaranteed a win and you're just working on the point spread. That's it. <laughs> How big is the win going to be? That's yep. extraordinary. And without the audience, that's gone. They are as valuable as any person in the band, including Bruce. Man, they're it. That's where the energy and the vibe comes from. We feed off it and we love it. And it takes us places we never have gotten in a studio, in a rehearsal hall. Yes, great, funny moments, beautiful moments. Nothing rivals that. Get to that point. Hey, people may play. You got to you know, make a living. People want to hear music. I'd rather sit in my car. I haven't gone to those car concerts. But man, you know, that's what we're all waiting for and hoping to get to. And the sad thing about mankind is we have the technology, we have the science, but we don't have the political will because of all the madness. And it comes down to money, greed, racism, power that is destroying. And I mean, can you imagine if six, eight billion people on Earth were all like minded, like, say, people in New Zealand? I mean, they all have different opinions. Mm-hmm. Some of them assholes, some are saints, <laughs> but they got together collectively and they got rid of this disease. They got a handle on it. Can you imagine a whole world where everyone's goal is to give everyone personal freedom, safety, and health to do their own thing as long as I can do mine? We don't even know what that world is, but that's our task as a human race moving forward. And hopefully we'll, we'll get there in the next year. So while you've been sitting home, I guess the question everybody always asks as you're sitting there, you're watching, you're binging like everybody else on movies and Netflix. So what if you had to pick two in the last year that, that you and Amy sat down and just said, all right, this was this was really worth it. What, what would you say? Comes to mind is Queen's Gambit. Yep. I knew it. Ordinary. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, Lovecraft Country. Oh, beautiful, beautiful show. Our son Dylan said, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. It's not right up our alley. Mm-hmm. And like all the monsters and crazy, but the Jim Crow South weaving all that together. And we just stuck with it for all 10 or 12 episodes. Incredible uh, theme song. It just blew my mind. I wasn't aware of a sinner man. Some uh, y- younger artist did a take on uh, Nina Simone's brilliant uh, old track called sinner man. But it was it. Those two were extraordinary. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And documentaries, did you, did you watch the Bee Gees documentary that just you came out? I, I love the Bee Gees. I haven't gotten to that yet. You'll I enjoy that's it. That's I got to see. You yeah. know, Mitch, the, we're so, so, I'm surprised as an unemployed musician how busy I've been because, you know, we got this beautiful, you know, old 1930s Adobe home, a lot of land. Things are breaking all the time. Amy's like the foreman, she runs the place, but still, we've been so busy. She's been cooking, trying to keep us in good food. We both great. got well, She's everybody. a great cook. <laughs> Amazing cook. Yeah, ran, ran a lot of great restaurants. Both got our health issues, but we've been busy taking care of ourselves, trying good. not to get good. this in our 
animals, like everyone's been. Everyone's yeah. got PTSD from all of this, so we got to oh, get through. big time. Was there some excitement, at least, in flying to New York for SNL? I know it had to be crazy, and I know the COVID tests uh, at NBC were out of control, and you know, but, yeah. It, well, well, at least this was, is exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was exciting and scary. It was so brilliant to play with the band. You know, and another you know, again, you know, Patty joined the band when I did, and we have like kind of a unique history because whenever I mean. All of them know those songs, right? But even in the beginning, Born to State Tour, and even to this day, last, you know, I always go down to Patty's room, we sing a little together, go over a chord or two, adjust one of her charts, just kind of a little thing we do to calm down before the shows. And after um, we finished rehearsing for the Saturday Night Live thing, I stuck around and, and did some work on Patty's working on a new solo record, which is brilliant. All her records are great, and I've played on all of them, but I got on a track that she's working on which was so great and just kind of calming but it was nerve-wracking I think I did 10 COVID tests in six days and when I got home I did two more I isolated from Amy for five days you know I mean I stayed in shouting distance I had a mask on so I was around the house taking care of the dogs and helping out but we stayed apart for till I got a negative test here so it was nerve-wracking but it was brilliant to play with the band and it was kind of comforting to know that SN now had such a hardcore safety program, which I was glad to see. Yeah. Well, clearly, clearly. So it's a question. I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss and he's written some amazing books. One of his books on tribe of mentors, and he does a lot of amazing podcasts and, you know, he's been through the ringer himself through uh, a lot of rehab. And, and anyway, he asked this question and I've added it to my show every week. So Nils, you're given a billboard. All right. And you can put on that billboard a message to the world and you know that everybody's going to see it. Now, what would it be and why? You know, that's that's a brutal one, man. I mean, you know, if it's a billboard, I guess I could say a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. A big billboard. Yeah, I really. Uh, I would need some time to come up with some thrifty uh, synopsis of, you know, the overall message is um, let kindness be your religion. All lives are equal. All lives cannot matter until black lives matter. Yellow lives matter. Every life matters. Until then, there is no all lives matter. So let kindness to your neighbor and yourself and equality be your religion. Beautiful. And it's so interesting. That has been a theme pretty much for the last 15 guests I've interviewed have used the word kindness. And I'm, not, I'm certainly knowing you and knowing Amy, there's no surprise that you threw that in. Folks, the album is weathered. It, it, it is an incredible double album, double CD, 16 tracks, earthy, rocking. It is exactly what we need right now until we can get out there. At least you can imagine what it's like sitting there. You can get yours at nilsloftgren.com and a number of other places, and we'll certainly link to it. But I'd rather you go to Nils' site so you can check out so many other cool things and a lot of the merchandise that we talked about. And I really appreciate it, Nils. And, and it's, it's always a pleasure. And you and Amy are just out there. You know, like you said, Amy is certainly a warrior. And whether Twitter takes her down or puts her back on, I hope she stays on because her message has, has been so needed out there and, and the message that you guys put out there. And you wrote a song many years ago. And, and when we edit this together, it's going to end with no mercy because I can't, I can't think of a better way to, to, to finish this. So Nils, thank you again. You know, these songs have been part of the soundtrack of my life 
And for all the incredible moments, whether you were on stage with yourself and your band and Grin, your wonderful brothers, obviously Bruce and the E Street Band, Ringo Starr, we didn't even get into that. And that's 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 a whole entire episode. And what a, is, what a yeah. fortunate life you've had to to be jamming at Ringo's house all night in London. And I, I've, I've heard that story and it's it's terrific. But really, thank you for, for your work and thank you for taking time and, and being with us today. And most of all, stay healthy because the fans certainly need a healthy street band out there real soon. Yeah, you know, uh, God bless you. Thanks for uh, plugging Weathered and uh, to everybody out there listening, man. Stay safe, top of the list. Stay safe, be kind to yourself, everyone around you, but let's get through this together. And, uh, you know, there's just so much unseen potential and unfound potential for the human race. And let's start, you know, heading in that direction. We've had a rough four years going in the wrong direction. Let's turn it around and uh, start fixing this planet for everybody on it. God bless everyone for listening. I appreciate it. Love to everybody. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nils. It's good uh, to chat with you, man.